Thanks, Carol. Well, good morning. My name's Seb. A big happy Mother's Day to all of the mums and grandmums out there. Have you ever had a song stuck in your head? Lately, Jess and I, we have had a song stuck in our head. It's a fairly trivial song, but maybe some parents out there can relate. Hot potato, hot potato, hot potato, hot potato. I tell you what, when you've been in lockdown during a global pandemic that have gone for weeks on end with your 18-month-old, and hot potato pops into your head for what seems like the thousandth time in a day, it can make you feel a little iso-crazy. Well, in our passage this morning in 1 Samuel 18, a few verses in, and make sure that you have your Bible open at home. I know what it's like to be watching church at home on a Sunday, so go and get it, and if you need to, give a nudge to a family member too. Saul, we'll see quite shortly, gets a song stuck in his head, and it's enough to make him go a little crazy. Well, before we look at it further, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you rule and reign over all the earth that you have made. You are king and creator. We pray this morning that you would help us to respond to your son rightly by your spirit as we meet him here in your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our series titled Two Crowns captures the dynamic in these two chapters, 1 Samuel 18 and 19, well, particularly for us this week, because the thrust of those two chapters highlights the stark contrast between Saul and David. Two anointed kings, one kingdom, and a song about both of them. My aim with you now is to retell this narrative because it's a brilliant story in four scenes, and here they are now. But the big question that I want you to wrestle with and ask yourself as you follow along at home is this. Who really wears the crown in my life? Part one, join to God's king. Our chapter begins in the first few verses with something unsurprising and something surprising. David, the young lad, still holding the Philistine's head in his hand, had barely finished saying his dad's name when Saul, snapping his fingers, sent word to the palace for an extra plate to be set at the family table. There wasn't a chance that David was going home anytime soon back to see his family in Bethlehem, not after what Saul had just seen. Now, I say this is unsurprising because of what we know already about Saul. It's completely in character. Back in 1 Samuel 14, we've already been told Saul is a bit of a warrior magnet. When Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. In a post-Goliath world, Saul, unsurprisingly, joins himself to David to strengthen his own kingship. Now, the irony, of course, for you and I, is as the reader, we know what Saul doesn't. 
that he's inviting the very person whom God has anointed to be his replacement to come home to be with his family. But Saul is none the wiser to what we know. How he acts toward David is unsurprising. However, what is surprising is the way his son, Jonathan, receives David. Twice in these first five verses, Jonathan, we're told, loved David as himself. And like his father, he joined himself to God's anointed king too. But there was a big difference between them. We're told Jonathan was drawn to David in spirit, in unselfish love, in covenant, but perhaps most surprisingly of all, verse 4, Jonathan took off his robe, his tunic, his sword, his bow and his belt, and he gave it all to David. We don't get told what, David was think, uh, what Jonathan was thinking at that exact moment. But what he does is undoubtedly highly symbolic, if not prophetic. The sense seems to be, David, I am on your side and I am at your service. And my respect and my love could not be higher for you. And it's surprising. Because we expect if there was anyone who'd have some cause to be jealous, who'd have something to lose with David's rapid elevation in the eyes of all the people, it would surely be the next heir to the throne. We might anticipate a rivalry to develop between these two warriors, but instead we get the deepest of friendships. Verse 5 rounds off as if to say, David was no one-shot wonder. He was the real deal. Wherever Saul sent him, success followed. David gets promoted in the army, and everyone is pleased with that decision. Well, what about you today? How do you respond to God's anointed king? Are you like Saul, or are you like Jonathan? Here's the difference. I think if Saul had a song in his head at the moment in this chapter... It would be the catchy lyrics from, now forgive me, 845 congregation, the Backstreet Boys, maybe 1045 too. I'll spare you my singing on this one, but depending on your age, you might know the tune. Don't care who you are, where you're from, what you do, as long as you love me. You see, Saul's relationship with David was one of convenience. Joining himself to David was a good means to another end, protecting his own kingship. And that's what some people are like with Jesus today too. They have a relationship of convenience. Being known as a Christian serves them well. But then what about Jonathan? He's the opposite. Jonathan doesn't try to use God's anointed king to build up Project Jonathan no, he defers to God's anointed king. He takes off all of the layers that clothe his life and says, none of this is more important than being right with you. Well, who really wears the crown in your life today? The Saul motto says, it's my crown. The Jonathan motto says, it's your crown. And I'm at your service. If you're a Christian today and lately it's been me, me, me in much of what you've been thinking and feeling at home 
And I'll be the first to admit, that's what I often feel lately. Then we need to learn and listen to Jonathan to fill our hearts with a different gospel tune. And remember what another Jonathan said of sorts. Many years later, in response to God's anointed king, John the Baptist said, He must become greater, I must become less. Because when you're joined to God's anointed king, Jesus, there can be no competition for his crown. So ask yourself a simple question today. Do I love him? Or do I really just love me? Well, part two, in tune with God's king. In verse six, we transition back to the return journey of Saul following David's success against Goliath. The king and company pass through the cities of Israel and are met with something of an impromptu parade. Joyful Israelite women, no doubt many of them wives of the soldiers too, come out to meet Saul, singing and dancing. And think about it. What a release of tension it must have been. For 40 days, all of the news out of the Valley of Elah had been bad and it seems to be getting worse. But then the shockwave spread, the ripple effect. Think Stephen Bradbury on ice when he unexpectedly won gold. Israel would have been amazed how the tables had turned with one small stone. And ever since then, a catchy song had raced to number one on the Semitic charts. The chorus rang out once more, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Over and over and over again. And everyone celebrated. Well, almost everyone. Perhaps even as Saul lay on his bed, he analyzed the lyrics once more, brooding over those words. Saul, David, and couldn't help but wonder about the comparison side by side. Or maybe you know that feeling of analyzing someone's words over and over and over in your head, words that were probably said harmlessly, but to you they have become poison. If that's you today, have you taken those words in your head to God in prayer because he does care? And have you shared those words in your head with someone else to find some healing in the love of being known by a friend? Well, verse 8 tells us much about Saul's own insecurities as a leader. Saul can't see that the defeat of an enemy under his reign, that is what counts. Not who defeated the most. No, Saul had a song stuck in his head. And the real insight comes with the primary thought bursting out at the end of verse 8. What more can he get but the kingdom? You see, never far away from Saul are Samuel's words from chapter 15, that because Saul had rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord had rejected him as king of Israel. Like Samuel's torn robe, the Lord had torn the kingdom away from Saul and given it to another. And from that point on, like almost any Australian prime minister of recent times, Saul has one eye over his shoulder all the time. You see it there in verse 9. From that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. Well, what about you? 
How in tune are you with God's King today? Saul wasn't. As he strolled through those streets, I think the tune of Saul's heart sounded a a lot more like this. See if it resonates. What about me? It isn't fair. I've had enough and I want my share. Saul was self-centered. Think about it, the sign of a good leader is to be able to have those who serve under you being successful, even more successful than you. No, as we think about our big question, who really wears the crown in my life at the moment? Check your own points of fear and insecurity because so often they might just be pointing to where you're finding security at the moment or where you're hoping to. The Saul motto goes, it's about me, not you. But the gospel kingdom motto goes, it's about you, not me. Remember our New Testament reading, Philippians 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You see, when you're in tune with God's King, you count others more significant than yourself. So ask yourself this Sunday morning, how in tune am I with God's King? Part three, God's an enemy of God's King. Now, this is the largest section we'll cover, so we're going to move quite quickly. Pick it up with me in verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. Now, we've seen this happen before. Two chapters earlier, Samuel anointed David. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And in the next verse, we're told, the Spirit of the Lord departed Saul, and an evil or a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. I wonder as you read through Samuel week to week, or perhaps hear it, if you ever feel sorry for Saul here. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Well, in either case, I think it's helpful to note, we have already been told what's going on inside of Saul. In chapter 15, he turned away from the word of the Lord. In chapter 18, he turned away from the anointed of the Lord. And how does God respond to Saul in turn? He sends a spirit to give Saul more of Saul. That's sometimes the way of God's justice. He just gives you more of what you've already chosen like he did back with Pharaoh hardening his heart in the Exodus, which is why as God's people, you and I, we must not leave our angry thoughts, jealousy, envy, rage, and fear hidden behind a facade, a happy Sunday smiling face. No, God cares very deeply for what is going on inside you and inside me. After all, big sins beginning so often in small sins that are left unchecked, which is why it is so important that we continue to Zoom with our growth group each week, to message a brother or sister in the faith, to keep asking for prayer from a wife or a husband, to keep reading to our kids and exploring what's going on in their heart, to keep prompting honest conversation around the dinner table. You see, in the case of Saul we see what a terrible thing it is to be handed over to ourselves. Verse 10, have a look. We're still in Saul's palace. 
David has a musical lyre in hand. Saul has a spear. Now remember the last person in 1 Samuel who was holding a spear. Well, before David can say, not again, Saul, not once, but twice, hurls his spear at him. David dead would pick up the king's bad mood today. But David dodges not once, but twice. And verse 12, we're told that in the absence of David's soothing music that follows his rapid escape from being skewered, Saul's anger gives way to fear. Why? Because, look at it, verse 12. The Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. In fact, if you ask me what song might have been stuck in Saul's head from this moment on, in chapter 18, all the way through to the end of chapter 19, well, one does come to mind. And you know that moment where the preacher says, I thought about singing this to you, and I asked my family, and they said no. Well, I figure most of you are behind screens anyway, so here goes. The song that was in Saul's head from this point on, one way or another, I'm going to find you, I'm going to get you, get you, get you, get you. That's the vibe from this point on. See, if we... See, if we look at verse 13, David straight away sent away from Saul. He's given another promotion, anything to get David away, keep him in danger's way, preferably on the battlefield. But surprise, surprise, verse 14, more success for the new commander, more fear for Saul, more love from all of Israel for the man who really looks like their king. So Saul is forced to reassess one way or another. This time, verse 17, the marriage trap is laid instead. Saul's eldest daughter, Merab, became a chess piece in a new scheme designed to keep Saul's hands clean. The plan involves marrying off Merab to David in exchange for what? More Philistine fighting. But this plan falls to the wayside when David won't come to the party. Merab is given to another man instead anyway. Not long later, marriage trap 2.0 springs into life when Saul hears the delightful news that Michal, his other daughter, has fallen in love with none other than Bethlehem's poster boy. Great news! Word is sent to David. The offer's back on the table. David is cautious, but no money is desired. All, all the king needs is a very small favour. A hundred Philistine foreskins, that should do the trick. Now, in case it needs clarifying, Philistine foreskins are not a particularly popular item on wedding gift registries today. But Saul knew David's always up for a challenge. And yet we can only imagine Saul's face as David's packages began arising, express posts landing on the palace steps. Especially when David returned double what Saul had requested. Now, pity the poor palace men who had to do the count. A cheery palace day that would have been. Well, a royal wedding follows, and look at verse 29. Saul became still more afraid of him, and he remained his enemy all the rest of his days. Chapter 19 starts with an emergency cabinet meeting at the palace. Very important agenda item. There's only one, a brainstorm about how to kill David. Well, Jonathan tips off David and manages to talk his father down from killing off the best soldier in the land. Look with me, verse 9. 
we're back in Saul's palace. The harmful spirit returns. And it's a deja vu moment for David. As the palace clock strikes spear o'clock, David's out of there into the night. Verses 11 to 17 in summary. At Saul's command, David's home sweet home turns into a 24-hour surveillance operation. Hitmen, dogs, lights and all. This time, David's escape involves tied sheets out the window. And Mikhail's delay tactics come to the fore. An idol is put in a bed as a dummy for David. And Saul's bozos are thrown off the scent until it's all too late to catch up with him anyway. Well, let's stand back for a moment and just consider, take it all in. Did you notice something unusual about David in this whole section? He barely says a word in both chapters. He's very passive, and we're supposed to see David refuses to grab the kingship. Throughout this whole section, David has done nothing but good. He acts in faith, not fear, even towards his enemy. Well, what about Saul? Think back over all of those failed plots and schemes and give chapter 19 a good read properly this week as well. In, in each case, all the power appeared to be in Saul's hands. And we're supposed to see that the real difference between them, the secret that matters is that the Lord was with David and not with Saul. Saul, you see, is on a path to destruction like one of the kings against the anointed in Psalm 2. Piece by piece, he is being dismantled before us. Why? Because he made himself an enemy against God's king. Well, lastly and briefly, part four, overpowered. The final scene from verse 18, David has escaped to Ramah and paired up with the prophet Samuel, Together, they go to Naoth, a place nobody today knows exactly where it is. There's a bit of mystery to the whole thing, and quite frankly, it gets a little bit weird at the end here. Word gets back to Saul about where David is. Pick it up at verse 20 with me. So he sent men to capture him, but when they saw a group of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came on Saul's men, and they also prophesied. Saul was told about it, and he sent more men, and they prophesied too. Saul sent men a third time, and they also prophesied. Now, I don't know about you, but if there was one catchy song I reckon Saul should hear at this point, it'd be these lines from Frozen, and I'll let you imagine a tune this time. Saul, let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore, let David Go. But we know that Saul won't. From verse 23. So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even on him. And he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. He stripped off his garments and he too prophesied in Samuel's presence. He lay naked all that day and all that night. This is why people say, Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, there's lots that could be say, said here, but here's the big point. The Spirit of God overpowered Saul, like he did back in chapter 10. But whereas that was blessing, here it is judgment. 
We started in chapter 18 with Jonathan offering his robe, his clothes, willingly to God's anointed king. But we've ended with Saul being stripped of his clothes, rendered absolutely powerless before the prophet whose robe he tore. Because ultimately Saul set himself up against God. Who really wears the crown in your life at the moment? If you're not a Christian and you're tuning in today, in love, let me give you a straight message. If you continue to wear the crown in your life, like Saul tried to hear, if you continue to reject God's King Jesus, thinking that somehow life is winnable without reference to him, then you are on a collision course with God and it will not end well. Well, what should you do? Abdicate. Take off your crown. Trust Jesus to be your king. Not tomorrow, not next week, today. And it's as simple as a conversation with God from home. And if you're a Christian, the message here is simple. Continue following Christ. Take up your cross. Expect that you will have enemies just as David did, spirit empowered and all. But the great truth of the gospel is that God's king is already seated in heaven and he has poured out his spirit on all of his people. And the spirit of God is the one who defends the people of God. So let us go to God in prayer. Let us be marked by the spirit's fruit of love and not fear. And let us live now, today, Sunday, with the end in mind by replacing whatever song is stuck in your head this morning with a different song, a gospel song and tune. And it's a prayer from the end of Philippians 2, that section we read earlier. Will you pray it with me? Father, we know that your son humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, you exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, Father. And all God's people said, Amen.